0: get to uh, explore this tremendous passage of scripture that we have before us today. It really is a treat. We, we've been following um, this saga, really, in the latter chapters of uh, the book of Genesis, uh, following Jacob's kids, really, uh, is mainly the, the boys there, Joseph and the brothers. And and uh, I know we always get new uh, guests that come in each week, and uh, so you're just kind of plopping in right here now and haven't been here for weeks prior, uh, and even people who call Living Water home sometimes miss a week or two. So I thought it would really uh, benefit us to just take a moment to, to recap, really, kind of where we're at today so that we can really appreciate the magnitude uh, of, of what's happening in our text today. Like I said, we're, we're following uh, these brothers here, uh, Joseph and his uh, older brothers, all sons of one man named Jacob. And Jacob, uh, way back when, early on, he, he had a favorite son, and it was Joseph. And he got him this multicolored coat that kind of set Joseph apart from the, the other brothers. And so, of course, they didn't care for that too much. And then to make matters worse... Joseph has these dreams depicting the the brothers bowing down to him. And and then Joseph decides to share this with his brothers, who, of course, this exacerbates the situation. And now they really don't like Joseph. So they they devise a plot to rub out dad's favorite. They're going to kill their younger brother. But instead of killing him, they decide let's make a buck, let's sell him into slavery. So they take that coat, that that famous multicolored coat, they dip it in some goat's blood, present it to dear old dad, deceiving him into thinking that his boy Joseph was mauled to death by a wild beast. And then this, this sets off a series of events in Joseph's life. He's sold into slavery, ends up in the land of Egypt, where things go from bad to worse. He ends up in the home of a man named Potiphar, kind of an important fella. Uh, his, his wife, Potiphar's wife, turns out she's got the hots for Joseph, and she's going to make moves and come sexually advance upon Joseph, who does the right thing and flees. So, of course, she doesn't like this. And then she cries rape, and Joseph ends up in prison he meets a bunch of people there, a couple of people, he's interpreting dreams, and ultimately he gets noticed by Pharaoh, the top dog in Egypt, the most important person there. And, and, and Pharaoh, uh, because Joseph has this ability to interpret dreams, utilizes this ability to interpret his own dreams and, and gets Joseph out of prison and actually installs Joseph as second in command in all of Egypt. So things begin to take a turn for the better. And within the dreams, there was this famine that was uh, going to occur. So, of course, it did happen, and and people from all around ended up coming to Egypt uh, because that's where the food was at. And Joseph was in charge of all that. So the brothers, they end up in, in chapter 42 of Genesis, they make their way from Canaan, to Egypt to buy some food due to the famine. And they come face to face with, of all people, their younger brother, Joseph. And verse 8 in that chapter is key because it says Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Okay, so Joseph knows exactly who they are. They don't have a clue who he is. And so ever since that point, there's this back and forth. They're making trips from Canaan to Egypt and back again. And they don't know who they're dealing with but they're about to find out. And that's where we're at in Genesis 45. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there. There's Bibles throughout the room, if you didn't bring one. Genesis 45, we're going to ultimately look at the first 24 verses, but I just want to start with the first three. And let me set the scene. It's, it's in Egypt. It's in Joseph's palace. Joseph's there. Some Egyptian officials are there. And his 11 brothers are all there present. And that's where we're at. And this is, as they say, the moment we've all been waiting for. The big reveal. So if you're able to stand, please stand with me in honor of God's word. We'll see what he has for us. Genesis 45, 1. God's holy word says this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Thank you. You may have a seat. So very emotional scene here. Very emotional. 22 years have passed and these brothers finally find out what happened to their brother Joseph. 22 years have gone by. And I want you to to put yourself in the brother's sandals for a minute, okay? Jump into their shoes and, and see what this whole experience would be like. First of all, they're dealing with this very important guy in Egypt who already seems to have something against them. He referred to them as spies, okay? Then there's everything that entailed last week with the, with the silver cup. So they're already in this, this frightening predicament with this really important person who put a, a world of hurt upon them. But to make matters worse, they now find out that it's their younger brother Joseph who they treated so poorly some 20-some-odd years ago by selling him into slavery. So this is not a warm family reunion filled with hugs and kisses, at least not yet. This is actually a very frightening predicament for these guys. And then they, they see their brother start to get emotional. You know, I don't know if it was the lip quivering or the eyes getting a little watery. But they're like, what in the world is going on? Is this guy going to, is he going to bring the heat on us? Are we going to, are we going to experience his wrath? Seems like he's about to cry. Like, what, what is happening here? And then Joseph tells everyone, get out. I want everybody out of here. I'm going to deal privately with these guys. And you know, the brother's got to be thinking, oh, dang, we're going to get it now. We're going head-to-head with this guy. And then Joseph starts to cry and utter these unbelievable words. Ani Yosef. I am Joseph. I got to think he dropped a little Hebrew on them just for the effect. You know? Because you got to remember, everything's been done through an interpreter at this point. Now all of a sudden, this guy's speaking their own dialect and saying, "I'm, I'm your brother Joseph? And, and, and Joseph's going to go on with this little speech here, but these guys are speechless. They can say nothing. They don't say anything until verse 15. This is all Joseph here. The text tells us that they were dismayed. Other translations, stunned, troubled, frightened, terrified. So that's what's going on with the brothers. What about Joseph? Hop into his sandals now for a minute how would you have handled this situation? Here are these guys, they wanted you dead. But instead of killing you, they just sell you off like a common commodity. Quite the brotherly love, right? No love for you, just hatred and jealousy. And you end up in the pit, then you end up in prison, and time has is, is elapsed, you're spending years there. This didn't happen like that. There was a lot of time going by. Time to stew. Time to let that root of bitterness take root within. And a time to plot revenge, perhaps. And now 22 years later, you have all power. You can do whatever you want to these guys. You could have them killed with a, a wave of your hand. Just heads lopped off right there. Could have happened, Sure. Joseph had that power. He could have kept them as slaves. He could have have sold them as slaves and said, see, how do you like it? And I wonder, would would we have done that? Would any of us have done that? I think it's easy to stand back from the passage and be like, oh, sure, yeah, I would have done what Joseph did. Are you sure? Because you're trying to tell me there's no vindictive people in our world? We don't live in a society as they say, payback baby this it's coming oh how the tables have turned now I got you you can't tell me people would not say that so let's not assume that everybody's going to do what Joseph does here and so what does he do he sends everyone out would you have done that would you have send everybody out or would you stand up and say listen y'all I got a story to tell who wants to hear a story 22 years ago, let me tell you what these scumbags did to me. I don't think that's too strong a language. And he could just put them on full blast, just make a spectacle of the whole thing, make them look awful, make him look great, because he'd be like, and look, I haven't even killed them yet after all they've done to me. And you just shame these guys till no end, watching them squirm. And you get your best, revenge possible in front of everybody. It's not what Joseph does. He sends everyone out. Why do you think he does that? I think it's an act of kindness. I think, I think Joseph's being kind. He's not going to make a spectacle of them. He, he actually has love for them. He's not going to shame them. This is, this is a private matter of, of, of family business that needs to be tended to because Joseph's heart is not bent Towards revenge. It's bent towards reconciliation. So over the last few chapters, we've seen these brothers, they were slowly brought to a place of humble repentance. We saw it last week, and Pastor Ben shared with us the the speech that uh, Judah gave. Judah is kind of like the de facto leader of the group. Like, you know, there's always one that kind of rises up, speaks for the rest of them. And, And he just gives this just heartfelt speech. To, to to Joseph, uh, you know, not justifying anything, just full submission, offering himself as a sacrifice. Like whoa, things have really changed with Judah and these brothers. But we saw three chapters earlier in Genesis 42. We'll put these uh, verses up on the screen here because this was a very uh, crucial turning point in the in the whole saga. The brothers are speaking when they said to one another, "In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother." And then we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. I love Reuben, he's the I told you so guy, right? You guys never listen to me. Should have listened. So now so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, that is Joseph, turned away from them and wept. So the brothers were brought to a place where they acknowledged their guilt. They, they knew what they had done was wrong, and they confessed it. Right? And, that, and that, I think that's what brings Joseph to tears. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very emotional thing. Joseph's kind of a crier. But that's not a bad thing. That's that's a good thing. He's a very emotional fella. And we're going to see more of that in a minute. So let's get back to to Genesis uh, chapter uh, 45. And what I want to do is I want to read the rest of the account. I want to read verses 4 all the way down to 24. And then I want to circle back and deal with verses 4 through 8 because I I really see that as the the crux of the text here. So you you can remain seated, but let let me just read it for you. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Beginning in in verse 9 here, we see the fruit of the forgiveness being offered. Joseph continues. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph. You think those words are going to shock dad? I think so. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that is, it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. I mean, what a beautiful scene. If I could just interject a little commentary. Like, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall to see that? You know, I wish I could go back in time and be there to see that. I bet that there wasn't a dry eye in the place. And notice it says that the brothers then talked with him. If you remember, at the very beginning of this, the Bible tells us they couldn't say a kind word to this man. Wow, how things have changed at this point. That's pretty amazing. When the report was was, uh, heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, And take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them. Do not quarrel on the way. He knows them. He's like, I know you guys. We're blood. But we have a a perfect picture here of forgiveness, reconciliation, and family unity. That's what this is. There's no denying that's exactly what's happening in this passage. That's the the what. I want to dig a little deeper and ask the questions, why and how? why did this happen and how did this happen? And and here's my main point here today. Your view of God will determine how you treat others. Your view of God will determine how you treat other people. My point here is going to be that Joseph, he knew the true and living God. He knew him well. He, He knew the, the, the God of the Bible, the God of the Scriptures, and by that, he was able to forgive his brothers. And let me show you that from the Scriptures themselves. When we look at the life of Joseph, I think there's something that is abundantly obvious. It just, it's just crystal clear. And that is throughout the entire narrative, we see just exactly how God-centered Joseph is. God is at the very center of his being and Joseph has an ever-present view of the Lord in that way, at the heart of who Joseph is. He is a God-centered man. And sure, Joseph occupied the, the throne in Egypt, but I think it was the Lord who occupied the throne of Joseph's heart. And I want to show you three ways in sp- specifically that the scriptures show us this. One is, that Joseph was God-centered in his speech. Two, he was God-centered in his character. And lastly, he was God-centered theologically. So we'll deal with them one at a time here. First, in his speech, for five straight chapters, here's what we read coming out of the mouth of Joseph, beginning in Genesis 39. When faced with that temptation to sin with Potiphar's wife, Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against you, Potiphar's wife? No. Sin against Potiphar? No. That's not what he says. Sin against myself? No. Sin against God. And it's true, he would have sinned against each of those parties, but he saw his sin primarily against God. Next chapter, Genesis 40. Joseph gives credit to God for his ability to interpret dreams. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. Genesis 41, Pharaoh says, I hear you're pretty good at interpreting dreams, Joseph. And he says, yeah, I know. I am pretty good, aren't I? That's not what he says. He says, it's not in me. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Genesis 42, when the brothers came to buy grain, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. For I fear God. Genesis 43, when Benjamin made his way to Egypt, Joseph tells him, God, be gracious to you, my son. I'm trying to show you that Joseph is utterly God-centered in his speech. He's always talking about the Lord. And I think this is one of the things that that caused him to be a forgiving person, that he was a God-centered person in this manner think about it. If Joseph was man-centered, we wouldn't be reading about hugs and kisses and people falling on people's necks. We'd be reading about Joseph wringing necks, okay? That's what he would be doing here. This wouldn't be a story of reconciliation. This would be a story of slaughtering of 10 Hebrew brothers who finally ran into somebody who they had wronged long ago who became very powerful in Egypt, but instead, that's not what we read. So to be sure, the brothers' lives were preserved through the grain that was offered there in Egypt, the grain that was stored up because they knew the famine was coming. But I would also say that the brothers' lives were spared by the love that, God, that Joseph had for God that was stored up within his heart. And what did Jesus say? That which is stored up in your heart it doesn't stay there. He said, it's going to come out and it's going to come right out your mouth. And we see that with Joseph. The second way that Joseph was God-centered was in his character. Go back to verse four. Notice how Joseph starts out. He says, he says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And I think this is the first glimmer of hope for these brothers. Because all they knew at the point was, we're in a desperate situation here. This guy has something against us. Then he tells everyone, get out. Then he says, I'm your brother Joseph. And they're like, oh no. And then he says, come near to me, please. And what's being conveyed there by the word please is it's a a beckoning. It's not, come near to me, you know, which they probably would have just passed out at that point and, you know, like we're done for. But no, he says, come near to me, please. And what Joseph is going to do here is he's going to demonstrate the very character of God in action. Remember Jesus, the God-man, the greater Joseph. What is he always saying in the New Testament? Time and time again, he's saying, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Jesus is always, come to me, come to me, come to me. And, and, and in both cases here, we have the person in authority, Joseph and Genesis, beckoning guilty sinners to come. New Testament, Jesus, the person in authority there, beckoning guilty sinners like us to come. He's demonstrating the character of of God. And the guilty people that, are, that, that, that come, they should be coming for a thrashing. But that's not what they get. It's not what Joseph's brothers got. And that's not what we get from Jesus. You come expecting a thrashing and you get an embrace. You come expecting wrath and fury and you get grace and mercy. And I think, I think we need to hear this. You know, I talk to people here and I, I just kinda know how, how things go around here. Sometimes, you know, people will come in and, and and they've done wrong. You just just you got dirt. You've done dirt, you you have sinned and and you come into this place and you say, I I am too dirty for Jesus. I, I've done too much, I've gone I've gone too far. I I, I I've I've spit in the face of his loving kindness. My whole life has been nothing but one big fat loogie in the face of God. He'll never accept me. And people think that. If you say that, you don't know the character of our God. we got to keep things in tension here. Some people, you know, they, they think God is all wrath. He's all anger and wrath. And make no mistake, God gets angry. He's angry with the wicked every day. And there's wrath. And, but the scriptures tell us God is love as well. So we tend to kind of fall into one side or the other and we're not keeping things in tension like the scriptures do. That God is, 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 is kind and loving and generous and gracious and all of that. But he's also holy and he's just and he's righteous and we got to keep the two together like the scriptures do. But the text tells us that God is rich in mercy and, and, and he says, Come to me. And those who come, you come like that. You come like I'm not worthy. I deserve a thrashing. What do you think you're going to get? A thrashing? You're not. You're not. You're going to get an embrace because you're coming rightly. The people who don't come, those are the ones who are getting a thrashing. Let's be real. So if you have, if are broken over your sin, come to Jesus. Do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. Find out just how merciful he is. See, and this is Joseph right here. He's a type of Christ. He's extending mercy to guilty people who have sinned against him. Just like we've sinned against the Lord. Joseph is God-centered in his character. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Notice here, Joseph has not forgotten and he names it. He he just comes right out. You sold me into Egypt. Doesn't mince words. He names their sin. And this is where I want to get theological. Okay, we're going to take a look at the theology of Joseph. And in order to uh, appreciate this, we need to go all the way back before Joseph, before uh, Jacob, before Isaac, before Abraham was Abraham, when he was still Abram. All right, we're going to go back to Genesis 15. This is where, you know, God in the previous chapters to 15, God has called this man named Abram. He says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have a ton of descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And in Genesis 15, God is making this covenant with Abram. And I want you to see what God says here. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain. I want you to tuck that in the back of your mind for a moment. This is God speaking, and he's saying, know this for certain. Whatever he's about to say, you can know it for certain. It's going to happen. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. God is saying, Abram, you're going to have a lot of descendants and they're going to end up in a foreign land. They're going to be strangers in a strange land, and they're going to be servants there for 400 years. Know it for certain. Question, what is the land that God is referring to? It's Egypt. It's Egypt. He's telling them they're going to be enslaved in Egypt, and know it for certain. It's going to happen. And, of course, we know that it did because we're on the other side of that, we can look back and just read the book of Exodus and see that this all did take place. But my question to you is this. How did they get there? How did this prophecy get fulfilled? Was it the will of God or was it the will of man? Interesting question. And the answer is right there in verse 4. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt stop. There it is. There's the answer. Joseph saying, that's how this all came to be. You, my brothers, you sold me here. And we know the whole family's going to come. There's five more years of famine still. The family's going to settle in Goshen and continue on in Egypt. So there's the answer. It was the brothers who made it happen, right? Well, as Lee Corso would say, not so fast, my friends." we got to keep reading. Many of you are like, who's Lee Corso? Either you get it or you don't. (laughs) Verse five, follow me here. Okay. We really got to put our thinking caps on now. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He just stated it again. You sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Hmm. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph, what are you saying? You just got done saying that they sold you into Egypt. Now you're saying it wasn't them It was God. What gives? We get into some interesting theology at this point. Have you ever heard anybody ask a question like this? How is it that God is sovereign and in control of all the events and all the affairs of this world, yet, we as human beings, we have a will of our own? We're making real choices. These are real decisions that we're making that have real effects upon those same events that God ultimately controls. How do those two wills play out? How do they interact? And sometimes it's nutshelled into this question of the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man. And a lot has been written on this subject. There have been books upon books and volumes upon volumes trying to figure this out, okay? And once you dip your toe into the water of this discussion, things get real complicated and real philosophical real fast, okay? You hear words like divine determinism, libertarian free will, compatibilism, open theism, modalism, middle knowledge, counterfactuals. Like I said, it gets real heavy real quick. But having said that, let me just say this in passing. That shouldn't scare us. Let's not be scared of that, okay? Not that we have all the answers and we're going to figure this out, but why not try? Why not ask God, have you revealed to us any hints as to how this all works? I mean, this, this is a thick book right here. You got anything in there that kind of help us understand what's happening? And don't you want to know what's happening? I, I do, when I see evil in the world, or somebody sins against me, I want God. What are you doing? What, what, what is what is happening here? Uh, is, is He causing things to happen? Is He permitting them? Are they outside of His knowledge and outside of His control? How, how do my own decisions that I make? How do they affect reality? Do they, or am I uh, a puppet? on a string? Or am I completely autonomous and I get to do whatever I want, operating completely free of any and all outside influences? Are these not interesting questions? I think they are. And again, in a limited amount of time we have here, I am not going to be able to settle this, okay? But in this passage, I think we have a clue. We have a hint that will, that will hopefully shed some light on the whole situation. So let me just offer to you some observations to consider. First thing I want you to see is, notice how Joseph has no problem with both. He, has, he doesn't have a problem with the will of man and the will of God. He just comes out and says to his brothers, you sold me into Egypt. You did it. You, you wanted to do it, and you did it. He just says it. And in the next breath, he says, but you did not send me here. God did He allows for both. It's the first thing I want you to see. And so what he's saying is there's two wills at play. You got my brothers in their evil sold me here, but then God in his goodness sent me here. Two different entities, man and God. Two actions, one sinful, one not. Two motivations, one sinful, one good. Yet these two wills yield a single result which is Joseph in Egypt for the saving of many lives. These two are compatible with one another. This is such an important issue. Joseph, he brings it up again five chapters later. Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, that's his brother. See, dad has died at this point, and the brothers still think like they're going to get it from Joseph. I mean, the forgiveness, I don't know. The reconciliation, as powerful as Genesis 45 is, Five chapters later, they're still like, "Uh uh-oh, dad's dead. Um, Maybe things are going to take a turn for the worse. So Joseph's got to kind of talk them down a little here. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So let's ask some questions here. Did God make those brothers do what they did? Was he the puppet master and he danced them up to Joseph and caused them to attack Joseph and throw him into a pit? I don't think so. Are they responsible for that action? I think they are. But was God at work in and through all the events that led up to this to bring about his own good intentions? We have to say yes. That's what the passage is telling us. And this isn't the only one. Just very briefly, I will just mention, if you, want to, if, you, if you find this an interesting topic and you want to find out what does God's word have to say on this, read Isaiah 10. Something very interesting with the, the nation of Assyria there. I'm just going to mention that. You can jot that down, maybe check it out in your own personal time. But I want to go to the other passage that's normally clustered here that I think is the granddaddy of them all. And it's fascinating. It's found in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter is preaching. He's preaching to the men of Israel. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God's will, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Man's will. The will of God and the will of man coexisting in the one action, which is the crucifixion of Christ. Two chapters later, we get a fuller understanding. This is a prayer in Acts 4. For for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, the cross, it wasn't plan B. God is not reacting and responding to things that have gone awry in the world. It was the plan all along. Yet people like Herod and Pontius Pilate and others, they did what they wanted to do, which was crucify the Son of God and put him up on a cross. That's what they wanted to do, and they did it. But in their wickedness, they ultimately served the predetermined purposes of God. I mean, is this not mind-blowing? I mean, it makes your head want to just crack open and your brains spill out onto the floor. I mean, it is unbelievable. And we have to ask the question: So who put Jesus to death? It was both God and man. two entities, two purposes, two very different motivations, one single event: Jesus' death on the cross. So you know what that means? Nothing, and I mean nothing, not even the evil intentions of man are going to ultimately thwart the sovereign will of God. So, is this just some theological exercise here to challenge our brains? Or is there real application? I think there is. Why do I say that Joseph's theology was one of the catalysts that led to reconciliation? You know why I say that? Think about it like this. When somebody sins against you or I, right? What do we say? I can't believe what they did to me. I can't believe what they did to me. What's missing in all that? It's all horizontal. It's all in a horizontal plane with no regard for God and what he's doing. It neglects the vertical. See, when we're sinned against and some, somebody wrongs us, Do we ever ask the question, God, what are you doing in this? Is there something for me to learn? Are you showing me something? Is there something bigger going on that I can see than in the moment right now? Because all I can experience right now is, is, is pain and hurt. That's all I know. But is there something greater happening? And how can I respond in a way that would be glorifying to you and would be good for everyone involved. Do we ask those questions? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. We're focused on ourselves, our hurt, our pain, and we just wallow in that or we want revenge. We're not asking these types of questions that I bet Joseph did. I don't know why else he would say these things if this was not in his theological viewpoint. And that's why theology matters. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing Romans chapter 12, which would be written so many years later, we're seeing it played out here in this palace. Let me read it to you. Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Is that not exactly what Joseph did? If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what Joseph did. See, good theology leads to good living. Right? So he was God-centered in his speech, in his character, in his theology, living life for the glory of God and the good of others. And you and I can take a page out of his book and do likewise. So as we bring us to a close here, may I ask you, is there anybody that you need to reconcile with Are you harboring bitterness in your heart towards them? Does forgiveness need to be offered? It's a good question to ask. You know, for the Christian, forgiveness is not optional. You are commanded to forgive. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. It's actually a sign that you don't know the Lord if you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart. And so you might say to me, yeah, Mike, uh, but you don't understand. Things turned out really well for Joseph. Look, he's in the palace, you know. I'm still in the pit. I'm still stewing about what they have done to me. I'm in the pit or I'm in the prison. Because, you know, not every story ends the way Joseph's story did. And to which I would have to agree. I think we have an example before us right here. Look at the life of Christ. Did his earthly life end well? didn't. They murdered him, put him up on a cross. But while he was hanging on that cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He went vertical. It wasn't, I can't believe what they're doing to me right now. It's not what he said. He brings God into the equation, praying for the very people who were at that very moment sinning against him. So whether you're in the the pit, or the prison, or the palace, or you're hanging on a cross, it really makes no difference. We are commanded to forgive. Joseph gave us an example. So does the greater Joseph, Jesus. He gives us that example as well. But the good news in all of this, in case you don't know, that's not how Jesus' story ended, with him dying on a cross. That's not the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the grave, forever defeating sin and death. And, and th- that was not the end. That cross was not the end of the story for him. It didn't end in death. And your story won't end in death either. But it starts with Christ. It starts by what? Coming to him. Come to him. You come to him in repentance and faith and you can experience that love and that mercy and that grace and that, that reconciliation that is offered only through Christ. But it starts with him and it ends with him. He's the dividing line. This is all about him. What we do here and this, throughout this entire building with every facet of what's gone on here this Sunday morning, it's all about Jesus. All of it, including this right now. That's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper and honor him. Let me explain how this is going to work. We have a new procedure.